Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Chris Roebuck on the line. Chris, how are you? I am great. How are you doing? I am awesome. I've been looking forward to this conversation because we're going to talk about a lot of things, especially the great resignation. But before yep. we get started, why don't we have you introduce yourself to the audience if they're not familiar with you, and then we'll dive right in. Well, uh, thank you to everybody for sparing some time to come and have a listen to some of my thoughts. Yeah, I'm Chris Roebuck. Uh, over my career, I've been in the military. I have been in business from international banking to small and medium-sized organizations. And I've worked in the public sector, government and local government uh, in UK. So yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff. And, and one of the things that I, I tell people, because my career has had a lot of twists and turns and different stops along the way, is yeah. you pick up tools along the way and you use them everywhere you go. Yeah. Uh, that's, and that's one of the beautiful things. When I first started my career, though, I said, well, you shouldn't bounce around so much. But if you don't bounce around a little bit, then you don't get the skills that you would have got if you just you know, stayed put. So uh, congratulations on your career so far and all this stuff. So let's dive right into, you know, the workplace and what you're yep. seeing right now, you know, across the globe, you know, in the US yep. and the UK, I know it's been having a lot of challenges, the pandemic, in my opinion, anyway, basically fast forwarded things that were happening anyway, because a lot of people yep. like to Dead point. Right point the fingers yeah. at, well, COVID caused this. It's like, no, actually, these were things <laughs> that were kind of yeah. festering a little bit below the surface. And then, you know, COVID basically ripped off that Band-Aid and we saw the wound and oh boy. So I want you to share a little bit of the insights you're seeing, especially around the great resignation and, and all the things that we're experiencing right now. Well, Michael, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, I love this no, no, it was all fine until COVID suddenly came along and it was big bad COVID that did all this stuff. And you go, I'm sorry, are you completely deluded? Are you saying that your organisation had no problem with customer focus, no problem with risk management, no problem with leadership or culture before COVID? And then suddenly it all happened when COVID. And, and I just think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um the you and I and, and all and all the listeners, you know, who, who've been in leadership or not even in leadership roles, you've just been in organizations for anything more than the last five years, will have observed that prior to COVID, there was stuff happening that shouldn't have been happening or things not happening that should have been happening. So, yeah, you know, the, the classic stuff about organizational performance wasn't as good as it should be. Um leadership wasn't as good as it should be customer focus could be better risk management could be better change and transformation should be slicker and you know all of those cost efficiency etc cetera, etc cetera, all of those things around leadership culture decision making and agility were bubbling beneath the surface now depending how good your organization was before covid the problem was either very bad or not so bad as you said, what COVID did was COVID took it up a gear. 
COVID suddenly forced organizations into a, a, a perfect storm because they had to adapt in that first few months to either we've got to close down because we're in a high risk industry or we've got to go remote where we can or some of our workers will go remote and some will have to have to stop working or and I'd like to compliment anybody listening who is an essential worker or was an essential worker in health, in transport, because those people had to go to work, whatever the risk. So we had those sort of three groups of people. And what is really, really interesting is that at the beginning of COVID, everybody sort of pulled together. There was this heroic, we've, we've got to work together. But then as what we all thought was going to be a sprint became a marathon, the cracks began to show. And so obviously the people that weren't able to work were out. The people that were able to work because, for example, they were doing something like on-site construction were reasonably okay. And the remote workers had to get used to remote working. But what I think was one of the is one of the most interesting comments I had during that period was that somebody said to me, what COVID did was it showed me who the leaders really were in our organization. And that pretty much summed it up because the level of pressure that leaders were subjected to trying to reorganize around COVID distinguished those who could do the job and inspire their people. And that was, and I had the same observation where I saw the organizations that were really thriving and yep. actually having, and, I, and a lot of people, I've talked to leaders and they felt somewhat guilty about this. And I told them, I said, I understand where you're coming from. You shouldn't feel guilty about success, but I understand why you're feeling this way. But they felt a yeah. bit guilty that their business was growing and booming during a pandemic. It's like, well, you're providing a service or goods or products Absolutely. that people need. You should celebrate that. Yes, I know in the in the grand scheme of people dying and all the other things going on in the world, I understand why you're feeling a little guilt, but you know, keep that in check. But yeah, I agree. The organizations that had the strong leadership that were able to pivot, be agile, you know, all the yeah. keywords, those are the ones that were able to adapt. And the ones that I encountered that were doing really, really well, mm -hmm. they just streamlined everything. They said, okay, we need to throw out every red tape dispenser we have in this yep. office, get rid yep. of it. We're going to start from what do we need to do right now? What do our customers need from us right now? We're going to do that. And then we'll, we'll adjust as we yeah. go. Little did we know we had to adjust for you know, a few years. We, you know, a lot of yeah. people are thinking, okay, like they said in the States, two weeks to flatten the curve. That was the longest two weeks of my life. And that's why I made the comment. We all thought it was going to be a sprint and it turned out to be a marathon. Yeah. But your comment about your comment about flexibility and, uh, and agility, I think one of the key things that made the difference was the willingness of senior leaders to cascade decision-making to the lowest practical level. Now, I'm an ex-military guy, and that's what the military has to do to make things happen quickly and respond quickly. But you know, my experience and your experience as well in many organizations, particularly larger organizations, is that there is a tendency for leaders to try and retain decision-making at their level and not cascade it or indeed not delegate. And whilst they could get away with that before COVID, 
when COVID hit, it blew that to pieces for them. The organization that I was assisting during the pandemic, mm-hmm. we we they were in a basically a housing organization that provided mm-hmm. affordable housing and yeah you had maintenance people going into the properties to work on them you had housing workers that would go in and engage with the low-income residents mm-hmm. and make sure they had everything they need well for safety purposes we had to scale that back so immediately sure. so we, we we got a text message or email our tenants we got to figure yeah. out if they have phones that can do that or email and yeah cut way back on that and, and reshifted the work priorities to make sure that external outside work uh, would be done yes. first and took all the necessary precautions. But before we we did that, we said, what makes sense? Let's have a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's like, here we are, what makes sense? And we just opened it up and we let, let people throw out some ideas and we implemented many of them because they made sense because they were the ones in the trenches. So are you comfortable with this? And that was the other yeah. question is we asked, okay, we're going to do this. That's a question you don't hear often from management or leadership. Are you comfortable with this and have a safe environment where yes. they can say, yes, I am, or hell no, I'm not. And, and if they're not, okay, why not? And then address it and sort through it because everyone's like, I'm afraid to speak up. You know, it's you know, like the, the story of Malali when he was leading Ford Motor Company, it took him forever mm-hmm. to get the truth out of the workers because they were losing money hand over fist and all the reports yep. he was getting every week was, hey, we're doing awesome. It's like, what? Where? Not it's like this, not this company. <laughs> so finally someone, you know, they put in a truthful report and saw a sea of red and he celebrated it. Then the next week they all showed up with the red and they realize, okay, now we know what's going on here. Let's work together and fix this. And that's it just having a safe environment, I think, goes a long way as well. It's but you're going back to your point about common sense. You see that? That's really interesting. In then that from my perspective, what had to happen in COVID was common sense. And as you remarked about leadership, particularly in organizations, they have a tendency to do what they've always done. And COVID forced people to take a step back and say, is this common sense? Does this actually make sense, bearing in mind what we've got to do? And also the the scenario of we always do what we've always done, nobody ever asking the question, well, hang on, we've been doing this for five years. The world has changed in the last five years. Are we still doing it, doing it the right way? And that fundamental question about do you feel safe? I mean, what concerns me about what I've seen um, in terms of leadership, and this links to the great resignation as well, is that there are a group of leaders and these are more likely to be in large organizations than small enterprises because small enterprises as as you and, and anyone who's listening who's in a small enterprise knows you know everybody's responsible for delivering success so everybody everybody gets into how can we make it better but in the larger organization it's the it's not my job scenario comes in and and i think the the issue is that there are some people in large organizations who have this Slightly strange idea that now COVID is easing off. We are going back to the world before COVID. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, what planet are these people on? Because it's a complete disconnect in terms of their personal experience and their business perspective. 
and I would say to all, all your listeners, I don't think there is anybody out there who has not changed their perspectives of life as a result of COVID. I mean, I don't call it the great resignation. I call it the great reprioritization because what, what's happened is that people have decided that life is short, life is precious. You know, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And, and the, you know, the data on, for example, employee engagement, employee engagement was going up for 10 years prior to COVID, but it actually went down in the States, in UK and, and, and other places post COVID. Now, you, you can look at this in two ways. You can say, OK, so if we make the judgment that employee engagement going down means that people are less happy with their leaders because their leaders aren't performing as well. So the only two reasons for that judgment is that either the leaders actually suddenly got worse or people raised their benchmark of what they expected from their leaders, because I've also called it not the great resignation. It's the I'm not going back because I'm not putting up with that anymore. Uh, and because that's not a resignation, that's I'm not even going back. Um, and also the if I do go back, I want to be treated with respect. And and the stats are, you know, the, the UK stats are um, turnover increased by 40 percent. And actually, when we're talking about employee engagement, you know, the average employee engagement levels, as you know, but listeners might not, are at the moment appalling, you know, under 25% engaged. Now, you think that's bad, but then, then you sort of think to yourself, but what are the other figures? Well, seriously, what are the other figures? So if you've got 25% who are engaged, and, and I interpret that as giving their best for the organisation, What's going on with the other 75%? And we know that the figures are likely to be probably, you know, maybe, maybe 60, 60 or so, 65, 70% who are not engaged. And that means sometimes I am giving my best and sometimes I just can't be bothered. And then you've got the killer 20% who are disengaged, who don't like their job, don't like what they're doing, don't like the company. And the stats I've seen suggest that for every single disengaged person on the team, you have to have four people who are not not engaged, but four people who are fully engaged. So if you have 20% who are disengaged, you can do the math. It means you need to have 80% engaged. Um, but, you know, people are saying, oh, well, that's, you know, that's about as good as you can get. Maybe you could get to 40, 50%. That is total garbage. You know, if you probably know him. I did a, a podcast interview with him. Um, you know, Gary, uh, Gary Ridge, the CEO at WD40, 93% engagement, folks. If Gary can do it, you can. Yeah, Gary does an amazing job there and has yeah. for a long time. And you were, long time. You, you were mentioning the, you know, the, you know, the hundred, you know, hundred percent engagement and all that stuff. And it reminded me of a, a comedy image that I've seen from time to time. So yeah. I give a hundred percent at work, 12% on Monday, 15% on Tuesday. <laughs> and, and, and that, but that's, there's more truth to that than not. And again, what happens is you, 
it creates this workplace culture problem as well, because yes. for those employees that are driven, giving, they, they have, you know, they agree with the mission of the organization, whatever it is, and they buy in and they believe in it and they want to create great products and services. When their teammates aren't, it creates a dynamic where there's frustration, irritation, it creates silos, it creates all of these dynamics where that top performing employee, one could say, you know what, why do I bother? And all of a sudden their performance checks out or they literally check out, you know what, this environment is toxic, I'm going to leave. All of a sudden, organization yep. just lost an amazing key person. And, and it's because you know the, the managers are busy doing other things than, than working with their team to figure out well, what's going on. You see, the research, the, the research is, is interesting about why people actually left. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the reason employees say they left is things like, I'm not valued by the organization. I'm not valued by my boss. The boss doesn't care about me. Um, the fact that I don't see any future in terms of where I'm going in this organization, it's because I'm just overloaded with work. And it's interesting that the employer's reason why they think people left are different because, oh, they left because they were ill. They left because they got poached. They left because they found a better job. And all the reasons that employers give for people leaving have, of course, got nothing to do with any fault attaching to the employer. And you think, I'm sorry, have you not heard of exit interviews? <laughs> and you just go, I, I just sometimes I just sometimes think that there, there's a group of senior management and outside the organization, there's a set of boxes. Um, and what they do is when they arrive at work, they take their brain out and put it in the box and pick it up when they get when they leave them. But but to your point about the leadership side of it, and, and this links to before COVID. Um, uh, over my career, looking at all of the places I'd been, like you, it, it was oh well. This is what seems to happen in, for example, you know, the military. This is what happens in SMEs, uh, small and medium-sized enterprises. This is what happens. And I spent some time working on London Underground when it was being part privatized. This is what happens in a safety-critical public service. This is what happens in HSBC, UBS, or whatever. And it was that journey that at each point, it became more obvious that there were consistent things that delivered success, no matter where you are or what you do. And, and looking at it and all the time, I, I've boiled it down into three key things that, that need to happen in organizations and leaders, leaders need to do. And going to your point about common sense and keeping it simple, I believe it's just one, having a firm foundation of task management. What do I mean by that? I mean that you as a leader can prioritize work, i.e. do the stuff that contributes to strategic objectives. Two, you can time manage time so you get it delivered on time. Three, you can delegate effectively so you do the stuff you need to do and other people can do other stuff. Four, you can communicate effectively so that they understand what they have to do and what's in it for them and the big picture. And finally, you give feedback so they know how they're doing and how they can get better. The problem is that a lot of leaders out there have never been developed effectively in those. 
Once that's in place, it's what I call get the best. And you know, the leaders say to me, well, how, how do I know how to get the best? And over the last 10 years, I said, I'm not going to give you the answer. You know the answer. Think about the best boss you ever had in your career. The one that inspired you, the one that made you actually want to go to work. And you know, how, how brilliant you felt. What did that person do on a day-to-day -day basis? And what is really interesting was I started asking that question about 10 years ago. And I said to an audience, you give me your answer. So they gave me a list of about 10 things. And I flip charted it. And I thought, oh, that was an interesting question. That was an interesting answer. So I'll do it next time. And I did it next time and next time and next time. And then I went over to Beijing and I did it with 70 top leaders of the Chinese space program. You know what? It was the same list. And I've done that every single time I've spoken to a group of leaders anywhere in the world, every single sector you could imagine, every culture you could imagine. And that list is always the same 10 to 12 things because it's what makes us as humans want to give our best for that person. Trust, integrity, ask me for my ideas, understood I made genuine mistakes, develop my career honest and transparent, knew me well enough so that when I needed support, they knew I needed support. All of those simple things. And what is amazing about those simple things is that when you look at them, 80% are about the emotional relationship between the boss and the individual. They showed they cared about me which is exactly the same reason that people were giving for leaving because they weren't getting that. Now, the bottom line is that if every leader in an organization did that, just by asking people for ideas, you can get 35% extra effort. If you multiply all of the things on those lists up, if you're in C-suite, basically, if you're a CFO, what that means is that if all leaders in your organizations do that, you can get 10% on bottom line for free, which isn't a bad investment. And then the final stage is taking all of that beautiful effort and saying, right, we know that you can be busy doing nothing. So let's make sure that all of that beautiful effort is focused on to strategic deliverables. Having that line of sight between operational activity and the big picture. And it's, I believe it's those three simple steps that make the difference. Make sure you can do a task properly, get the best from people, and then focus that best onto what delivers success. Three simple steps. It's very similar to something that I did. I took over a healthcare organization several mm -hmm. years ago. And at that point, it was about three years old. And they were averaging around 86% turnover a year. I'm not talking no. I'm not talking about a fast food restaurant. I'm talking masters educated and above people, 86%. After That's... after my first year, it was six percent. Well, what credit did, to you, Michael. Credit to you. Oh, I I, I take hundred percent credit. Uh, and not just the 12% on Monday, 10% on Tuesday joke either. I I, <laughs> I did the whole thing. What did I what did I do? First is I met with them individually and as a group. Yeah. I asked them, if you were running this company, what would you change? Uh, what would make your job easier? Yeah. What can I do for you to make it easier for you? 
and I backed it up. You know, there were some of the things that they had asked for were simple to implement, didn't cost a lot of money. And we got it done within, you know, two or three weeks. And all of a sudden it demonstrated, okay, we told him what we wanted. He delivered. I think we can trust him. And trust, trust. Yeah. That, what that did as well is it improved our standing as a clinic in the community. Uh, it was mm-hmm. gov- government funded because it was based in, in Canada. So sure. the, the, the Ontario government, our performance improved. We started getting more funding. We were getting funding for more doctors, increased staff because we were hitting and exceeding program targets. Why? Because people were engaged. Why? Because we were listening and taking care of them. Do with, oh, my father is sick. He's overseas. Go. But I don't have enough vacation time go we'll sort it out later go family first and you know that the name of the clinic had family health team and i i told people it's like family comes before the health team we're the health team your family comes first period full stop and they tr- knew that and you know they 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 i don't want to say they took advantage of it but they when they needed to do it they did it and it was one of my proudest moments of my career was sure, doing sure that they. turnover because I, yeah. I i saw the mess and i'm like i know how to fix this and and the board you know was, was probably going how is he going to fix this the others haven't been able to i did and you know i and i did uh, <laughs> the so. beauty but the beauty is that michael what you did is what any best boss would do, and it's common sense. You know, it's about, I find it really strange that um, a lot of leaders don't understand the simple concept of putting yourself in the shoes of the person that you're talking to. You know, that's that's basic psychology, for heaven's sake. And I, I Part of my career before COVID, I did a six-month part-time neuroscience course because I wanted to understand why I knew this stuff worked, but I wanted to understand why this stuff worked. And what I discovered on that course was very much, and to to, to all your listeners, the things that we talked about, and, and you mentioned, Michael, about asking people what they think, making sure they're okay, show you care, build trust, transparency, act with integrity, lead by example. All of that stuff, interestingly, the emotional power behind it works through psychology in terms of reciprocation. If I'm nice to you, you're likely to be nice to me, which is powered by the neuroscience, which is hardwired into what's going on up here. And that is the part I find interesting, that if you respond positively to another human being as a leader, and it's not only as a leader, it's family, friends, somebody on the street, that we are hardwired up here to respond positively to a positive approach to us. It's the way the wiring works. It's a chemical reaction that actually we can't really control. It just happens. But equally, for the leader who doesn't think about what they're doing, who doesn't think about their people and does something stupid, if you're listening, you need to know that this works in reverse with adrenaline. And if you upset people or you in any way instill any fear in them, you are going to trigger a 250,000-year-old defense mechanism. And if you think you have your change program you want to get done here, 
versus 250,000 years of human evolution, I'm telling you, it's not your change program that's going to win. And that is, in closing, a great reminder for us all. The amygdala, lover or hater, uh, she, she, she <laughs> some, day, some days it's a hate, but I'll be honest, uh, but it, it, yeah, you, you, you got to get but by. That's the point, Michael, that's the point. If leaders understand that, if leaders know that those simple actions will unleash the true power of this in terms of positive response and people giving their best. I'm sorry, I firmly believe that every every single leader should be given half a day on simple, practical neuroscience. That is amazing advice. And I highly encourage every one of our listeners, whether sure. they're running a business or anything like that, to actually do that for their leaders and their team. You're going to have a healthier team. Yeah. So, Definitely. Chris, I've loved this conversation. Where can people find out great. more about you and all this amazing work you do? So I have a website, which is www.chrisroebuck, as in searsroebuck.live. And I also have a podcast, uh, which is called perspectives from the top so if you just google perspectives from the top i have like michael and i i have such an amazing range of guests there because all of their experiences confirm that the things that michael and i have just talked about actually make a real difference from the uh, peter mara president of the international committee of the red cross to Andy Byford, who revitalized New York's MTA and now runs Transport for London, to Jamie Blaustein, school athlete, leading school player who got caught up in drugs, failed rehabilitation six times, got out on the seventh, went and started being an investment banker, gave it all up, and is now running a mental health charity. You couldn't get more varied than that. Amazing guest, and I'll definitely have that information in the show notes. So, Chris, thank you again for being you. And so for, good to be here. And for all the stuff you're doing, and thank you again for your time today. Really appreciate it. Pleasure, Michael. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of The Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.